welcome to Books on the Go, a podcast where we talk about our book of the week. I'm Anna Bailey Karras and I'm here with Annie Waters. Hi, Annie. Hello, how are you? Good. And this week we've been reading The Vulnerables by Sigrid Nunez and first book news, uh, just a short one, but I thought this was interesting, Annie. The Women's Prize, which has been the Women's Prize for Fiction, has introduced a prize for nonfiction and they've just Mm -hmm. released their long list. So this is a £30,000 prize and just of note is that Anna Funder's book Wifedom is on the long list for the the inaugural Women's Prize for Nonfiction. And that was interesting to me for two reasons. One, because we've read it and we did it on the podcast. And I mm. think Anna Funder's coming to Adelaide Writers Week. So that will be exciting to hear from her. But also this has, I think this was also available in the fiction section. I was going to say. It could I was interested in your thoughts about that because it very much is a mix of the two. You could potentially mm. read it as a very essay, essay heavy novel, but it does on reflection make to m- more sense to me as a, as a biography of sorts. But what was your mm. take on that? I think I would put it as 80% nonfiction and 20% fiction, if not even a less a lower percentage of fiction just because I think that everything she writes about comes from historical fact so but and it doesn't read like a historical novel you know she's not tried to Mm -hmm. historicize to give a narrative version to all of the facts most of them she presents as um, history especially her own biography and then she fictionalizes some things that we're never going to be able to know how they happened but I think she draws pretty heavily on the existing record to do that. Yeah, it's sort of like a creative biography, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you could sell it to readers of both, but it's an interesting blend of of genre. It's not quite yeah. like anything else I've read. And then there was a report mm. about Spotify. Remember we did that story about how Spotify was streaming audiobooks and they just pop up. If you have Spotify Premium, they just pop up for free. You don't pay anything for them. And that I think at the time authors were concerned about what does that mean for authors because it, mm. it seems to be giving away their work for free, whereas I think traditionally when they do their book deals, they have audiobook rights and they get a certain amount for the audiobook as, as a mm. product. And Spotify has said uh, this week that they have paid millions of dollars to publishers for the streaming that, and they said they've had so many downloads, they're thrilled with how it's going. And I think the Britney Spears book was the top downloaded one mm, so far. Makes sense. So there you go. So hopefully <laughs> yeah, great. that is well, trickling down to the authors, we, we're hoping. Yes, yes, yes. hopefully. Very good. Well, on to our book of the week. So this is The Vulnerables by Sigrid Nunez and it completes a sort of loose trilogy for both us and for Sigrid Nunez, I think, because Annie and I did The Friend in mm. 2018 and we on the podcast and we did What Are You Going Through a couple of years later on the podcast and now we're reading The Vulnerables. Um, so Sigrid Nunez, uh, if you've been listening along to the podcast, you'll you remember this, but she's a New York author and they those two that we've read are probably her best known books, but she's written seven novels, I believe, and, and also a memoir of Susan Sontag, whom she knew well. The Friend 
was a, a New York Times bestseller and it won the National Book Award 2018 and she followed up with What Are You Going Through? Um, she has a wry style. It's fiction but it has it, she mixes in her own reflections and thoughts and lit, literary references um, but because she, I think because her prose is really clean and she does bring a sense of playfulness to it, that it doesn't seem too heavy handed, but she is a thoughtful mm-hmm. writer. And I think we should talk a bit about her style, but it, I'm, it, there are elements to me of Ali Smith, the seasonal quartet, mm-hmm. or even going back to Milan Kundera, who always would put sort of digressions and essays, even in his novels, and Deborah Levy, who whilst mm-hmm. hers is more, she writes essays as such and writes separate memoir and non-fiction but those sections feel a bit Deborah Levi-ish perhaps because it's a writer's life so that's mm. um, understandable. Waiki Yong I think it is and a younger author who Sigrid Nunez mentored um, spoke in the New York Times about Sigrid Nunez has this playful organic way of storytelling so it it just feels very natural when you read it and I've heard her say she doesn't outline so that that rings true, that sort of might explain part of her style. Um, The Vulnerables is, I think she calls it a pandemic novel. So she wrote (laughs) it during the pandemic and it's a simple story, as I say, mixed in with a lot of her own thoughts as a writer. Um, But the narrator is unnamed and she's a writer living in New York um, and she ends up during the pandemic sharing an apartment with a young man who's dropped out of university and a parrot a macaw called eureka and they have to share this not not small apartment fortunately there's there's a plenty of space but all in the same apartment with various um, lockdowns and she because she's at a certain age she's considered a vulnerable so that's the title which I'd forgotten all of those terms Mm. that we got so used to about people who are vulnerable and they have to stay indoors and she doesn't she busts out and goes for lots of walks but it it did it reminded me of that strange time and she talks about New York having empty streets and how surreal that was and food was still being delivered so there's a bit of a comment on this class of people who are still actually working and delivering food to people who are comfortably sitting in their homes. There's, yeah, there's sort of an odd couple storyline to it, but also very much it's about a writer's life and reflections of the age that we're living in and certainly on the COVID age. So, yes, what did you think, Annie? Yeah, so I read this a little while ago and coming back to it, I had very few memories of it, which is strange because I I remember liking it at the time, but I really couldn't remember much outside of the broad strokes of the plot. So for me, I think it's probably the weakest of the three loose trilogy um, that we've read, which all seem to feature this same kind of unnamed narrator who Sigrid herself. But then going back and rereading sections and kind of reading reviews and, and thinking back on it, there were really good, it's still a wonderful novel. I mean, she's a very good writer and she really conjures that kind of COVID time amazingly well. And I think we have blocked a lot of that out. And obviously we didn't live in New York, so we don't have that exact same kind of experience. But for me, I was wondering why it didn't stay with me in the same way and I wonder if because you know the friend is about the suicide of a friend of hers um what are you going through is about the death and the death of a friend or the, a friend who's going through cancer treatment this one I think feels a bit 
less weighty because it is about quite a privileged group of people who are living through this albeit difficult time but you know I think it feels removed from humanity in the same in in a different way to the other two so yeah it didn't stick with me but yeah as I say going back it's it's got a very light touch as well and I think all those sections and digressions on writing it it's hard to kind of hold together the plot in your head because there's not much of a plot really it's you know narrative arc separated by little essay pieces so yeah, there's lots to talk about, I think, but for me it didn't necessarily make a deep impression. It's not one that I'll kind of return to, whereas the others I feel like I have a much stronger relationship with. How about you? Yeah. It's it, That's interesting and it's interesting you say about the privilege because really her struggle, well, she does struggle with various things, you know, forms of loneliness and she does get depressed at a certain point in the novel, but mm. essentially her struggle is not being able to write, which does seem a bit mm. lightweight. I know that sounds terrible, but compared to what a lot of people were experiencing mm. during COVID. And so it does seem a bit privileged from that point of view, doesn't it? I really enjoyed mm. it. Probably like you, I only read it more recently, but probably so I, it is fresher in my mind, but I'm probably a bit the same in that I may not remember the characters are very distinct in my memory. I think if you have a parrot, that will always be memorable because, the you know, the parrot, Eureka is so distinctive. So I think that will always stick with me. But the story, as you say, the plot is quite thin. So I won't necessarily remember the plot itself, I suppose. Um, and the reflections meander, sort of meander a little bit. But I really enjoyed it. I, I just love her prose. I find her really witty. It's very conversational, very easy to read. Um, it's a bit like having the banter of a smart friend nearby, just talking to you with all kinds of intelligent observations. And there, like there, were just the humour. There was there were little, almost thought bubbles. But there was one where she just had this one sentence rewrite of a Kafka novel, and it's called. Even worse, one day Grigor woke up to find his wife, his wife had transformed into a giant cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> and just things like that would have me laughing out loud. And then there are also the New York Times talks about some uncomfortable elements of it in, and in that some of her observations about the woke culture or what the New York Times recalls Robert Hughes referred to as the culture of complaint which is a title of one of his books that she says men only appear in fiction now to be criticized they're not doing the right you know not ever seen as doing the right thing and even male authors are showing their you know superior female characters they're really careful to portray women really well I you know things like that which the New York Times said are, we read as let's say uncomfortable for some readers it was interesting it was uh, probably an older she's you know an older woman so she's mm. probably got well she she doesn't have the mindset of a gen z or a millennial so i think that was and I think what she's that a told teacher. me she's a teacher too so she must see a lot of writing from students that kind of reflects this kind of virtue signaling Yes. kind of fiction which yes. I do think there are ways to write about those issues that still can be elevated and literary and have all the qualities of a good book but you know when you read an awful book with very didactic plot lines that's kind of ticking a lot of boxes that's pretty obvious pretty and I think that's the kind of fiction that she's talking about and it's comment on the publishing industry too because it's that's what is being privileged I guess in terms of what's being published at the moment which must be frustrating 
not that we need to return to a kind of stale male pale no, world. No, but, but I can see where she's coming from. And I think taking that quote in isolation is a little bit reductionist. I think she makes an argument through the rest of the book that is hard to distill into a simple paragraph, you know? Yeah, that's right. But I, and it's such an interesting topic where the books have become, well, and I think it, you have to go book by book, but there are uh-huh. some that go too far into the preachy side of things. And I also think, you know, the character, although it's a Sigrid Nunez stand-in, she has said she makes things up, it's not her. I think she's reflecting the views of a person of that age in that line of work. There's a distance between the the character and the author. She has said the observations and thoughts are hers and the incidents and events are made up. So Mm. I think we can read it as her. And in the end she said because she wanted to use that author's pseudonym because she'd always thought it was so funny, sugared nouns. She said, well, if I put that in, people will know that the narrator is Sigrid Nunez, but she decided she just would put it in anyway because she really wanted to use it. So they do seem to be her observations. But I also wondered whether the data would back up that view that publishing is favouring, you know, women, women-centred novels or strong women and at the expense of male characters I I mean I wonder if you look at the top 100 Mm. bestsellers for example I still think there's plenty of Lee Child and and those sorts of books I think it just skews more you know know, there are more women being published and there are more female characters than previously but absolutely I don't know if it would be at parity yet there's certainly a lot to think about in the novel Mm. it's quite thought-provoking yeah her style is really interesting and it's funny you say because the plot is quite slight it's it is the weaker one of the three and I almost wonder and she was struggling very much to write a novel she found it really difficult during the pandemic and I almost wonder whether she could have released a like Deborah Levy has from time to time just a a memoir of sorts or a, a collection of essays or even a COVID diary if you want to call it that because I would read that I love her her style and her observations so yeah I think the New York Times review I said I read described it as a COVID diary with a light scaffolding of incident interesting whether she needed that light scaffolding whether she could have even removed those sections I don't know yeah I guess it I guess it comes down to whether she wants to write biography or fiction and I think in an interview with her I read that there will never be a biography of Sigrid Nunez. So maybe she really resists that memoirist kind of impulse yeah. that seems to be, you know, that so- someone like Deborah Levy or Olivia Lang is the other person that her style reminds me of, um, that the crudo, where it was yeah. a little bit of fictional um, character work but interspersed with art and history and all sorts of musings about the world and again very contemporary it's certainly how she wants to do fiction because she said yeah. and it, it made me think of Olivia Lang as well because I went to a talk where Olivia Lang said you can't write a traditional novel now it feels beside the point and Sigrid Nunez yeah. has said exactly the same thing that it just feels I don't know if she said this but the effect of what she was saying was it just doesn't feel urgent enough in these times mm. or it doesn't feel true. You, she finds that form not helpful. So she's certainly, mm. like Olivia Lang, wants more immediacy, I think, in her, mm. in her fiction. When I think we're living through such bizarre times, it is almost stranger than fiction. Lots of authors decided that whatever project they were working on when COVID happened kind of had to get put aside because how can you write about anything else while something so big 
is happening in your world. You can't pretend it's not happening. And a lot of people, I think, couldn't think beyond, you know, the news reports and the death tolls and the strange trappings of those times. A good writer's impulse is then to record that and to say this is the biggest thing that's happening in my lifetime. We need to be talking about it. Yeah, I just think I've read other COVID novels that have made me reflect on that time differently or had bigger issues within them. This to me felt like COVID diary, a little bit of class discussion about who got to do what and the way that privilege kind of intersects with your circumstances and writer's block it felt like she was trying to write her way through writer's block and then published that book which yeah I do remember enjoying it at the time but yeah kind of on reflection going back I just those are the things that kept recurring to me so it I don't know it's a funny one yeah I did I did really like the way that she talked about choosing the names and the fictionalizing of that felt quite fun that um you know the names of her friends she kind of just decides they're all going to have kind of floral names and then when the man that she moves in with she names him vetch like a weed yeah so you know she's a funny she's a funny woman and has obviously got a great turn of phrase but yeah I just wonder whether it could have had a little bit more time to sit and percolate about what the story was and what the greater ideas were maybe that's me too it's funny when you read books that kind of don't come at the right time if I'd read it a year prior maybe that would have felt a bit different maybe but it's interesting you say it it feels like she's writing out of writer's block because I think what the effect of that is compared to the other two the friend and what are you going through is that Mm. there isn't that sense of an urgent need to tell a story that you get with those where they feel a bit more story driven. And I think that always mm. sticks with us a bit more, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. I think you do need the scaffolding. If it's going to be a novel, you need to care about the characters. And I just, I don't have strong impressions of those characters. The university dropout was fairly flat in the end, wasn't yeah. he? Because it, the premise yeah. makes it sound like this could be a really fun, odd couple scenario, especially because yeah. you, know, you know that she's got this great sense of humour. And in the end, it, it sort of fizzled a little bit now that I'm thinking about it. Well, he's yeah. just not in it that much. It didn't feel groundbreaking to me. The other one, when you talk about the pandemic novels, the Louise Erdrich one we loved, The Sentence, mm. didn't we? Yeah. That was a good yeah that one stands out the other one that I really loved was Lucy by the Sea Elizabeth Strout by Elizabeth Strout exactly that's wonderful and I think does lots of the same things that this novel does but at a slightly deeper level and Mm. then Seven and a Half by Christos Chalkas yes was a wonderful kind of post-pandemic or in a similar way writer escapes the city to kind of get his novel written but I and and looks at form but that I think was again a much that deeper look. That was exquisite. Look. I I had a note too that that reminded me of a little bit of seven and a half. But I think in in terms of the reflections, they are beautifully curated. So I'm sure that there's probably twice as much to compare to what was published. And I do love the way she's edited and pared them down and curated all of those reflections and digressions, so that we just get the gems mm-hmm. that make it so sort of lively and interesting but yes what a well there we go we've done the trilogy now Annie so we've Mm, done mm -hmm. The Friend What Are You Going Through and now The Vulnerables by Sigrid Nunes we're the experts coming up I'm not sure what we have next so I've just returned from being away so I do have a stack of books now 
that we can look through and I'm sure you do this as well. So we'll put that up on Instagram. So keep an eye on that. You can follow us at Facebook at Books on the Go, email booksonthegopodcast at gmail.com. And I'm on Instagram at a Bailey Harris and Annie. I'm on Instagram at Mr. Underscore Annie. Fantastic. We will see you next week. Bye for now. Bye.